Hello everyone, my name is Persia, and this is usually Eleven Again, a show about things we loved as kids and revisiting them as adults, but Eleven Again is on a break. So what I wanted to do, in case you were missing me specifically, is to introduce you to a show I was a guest on called Eye of the Duck. They do a very good job of explaining what the show is about in the episode I'm going to play right now, so please listen, enjoy, and if you're looking for more podcasts, you should give Eye of the Duck a try. Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. Each week we explore a film we love and search for the scene at its center. It's Eye of the Duck. That's an idea we're borrowing from David Lynch. He says when you're studying a duck, you can look at the duck's bill, its feet, its feathers. But if you really want to get to know a duck, you have to look at its eye. In this podcast, we try to get to know a movie by its most essential scene. Welcome to Eye of the Duck. I just want to start by saying, I think I hate camp. (laughs) People have been trying to cram camp down my throat for years. I've tried to get into camp stuff. I'm so shocked to hear this. It actually doesn't make any sense to me. I love like disgusting shit and I love disgusting horror and comedy and scatological humor. But (laughs) something about campy movies always turns me off. But then again, maybe I like camp because by the end of this film, I was like, I love what's going on here. I still don't understand camp, but I love this film. Yeah, because I don't know that I would call this film camp, to be perfectly honest. This isn't camp? I understand why it's camp. But it's also like, here's my question about camp. If the movie knows it's camp, is it still camp? Well, that's a good question. Um, Do you guys think this is a B movie? Yes, this is a B movie. I mean, it's like an elevated B movie because it is pretty fucking brilliant. But I I think that's De Palma's whole thing, though, is that he makes incredible elevated B movies where they were talking about like Dress to Kill or Carrie or even recently um, Passion. That's what he does is he takes these genre kind of films and he elevates them. And I know that people are going to probably yell and say there's no such thing as elevated XYZ. But I don't know if this isn't an elevated B movie, then... I don't know what the fuck it is. I'm Googling B-movie. B-movie stars uh, Jerry Seinfeld. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's roll the credits. It's done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What this says is that it's low budget commercial. But I don't know. This movie didn't look particularly low budget to me. I didn't look up the budget, I guess. Yeah, I guess it doesn't look like some of those like grindhouse B-movie horror movies that are like, obviously obviously low 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 it is it is relatively low budget it is real i just think the production value is so good i mean the the set design sort of drives me wild the production design is by a legendary production designer jack fisk who we've already talked about on this show because we have covered maholland drive which he designed and he is you know perhaps best well known for his collaborations with david lynch Shine on lightning, the days are long and the nights are frightening. Nothing matters anyway, and that's the hell of it. Okay. Today, we're talking to Persia Verlin, the host of an incredibly great podcast called Eleven Again. 
In her podcast, she has her guests revisit things that they loved when they were kids. We asked her to come on our show to talk about a movie that she loves, any movie, and Persia, you chose Phantom of the Paradise, which is camp. <laughs> and I'm very mad about it. But my first question is kind of to play your game back at you. Is this a movie you loved when you were 11? No. No. <laughs> I saw this movie for the first time this year, or I mean the last 12 months, not this calendar year. And weirdly enough, I have an 18 year old little brother who is just a film kid, a film bro. He's too young to be a film bro in my eyes. He's coming into his film bro-ness. And he, for whatever reason, has a friend whose parent has a huge poster of Phantom of the Paradise mm. in their house. And my brother was like, I see this poster all the time and I want to watch the movie. We should watch it. And this was sort of in the middle of quarantine. Actually, my family had a COVID scare and we were all in the living room watching Phantom of the Paradise for the first time. I think it charmed me immediately because what is an 11 again thing for me, something that I was always very into is musicals. I've always been into musicals. And that's just been sort of a family event my whole life. You know, my dad is showing us Grease and West Side Story and all these movies from a very young age. So I think that was definitely something that helped me attach myself to it. Well, that makes this a very interesting podcast to have because I hate camp and Adam hates musicals. <laughs> <laughs> and I love camp and I love musicals. But we all love this film, right? I loved it, yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I was all about it. I was like, where has this been all of my life? Yeah, I'm so happy I finally watched it. Yeah. Percy, I imagine that poster is amazing. Yeah, I actually got one myself. I was. So I jealous. almost ordered one today. I was like, getting a <laughs> Phantom of Paradise. Of the yes. Yeah. Adam is showing us yeah. the cover of the Blu-ray. And the Blu-ray, I'm insisting that starting on this episode, we're doing Adam's Blu-ray corner where I talk about the, <laughs> the physical media. But if you flip it the other way around, you can take out the slip cover and reverse it. And it's got a whole other alternate poster artwork. Oh, amazing. Oh. Yeah. That just reminds me of the sort of tactile memories I had of opening up CDs. And if they had those books, those like lyric books, and there's even artwork in there, I really loved that. Yes. So is this the first time that you guys have both watched it? Yes. But you had known of it? You had heard tale? I knew of it from just like, you know, whenever I get into any director, I just, you know, pour over their IMDb and see what else they've done. So I was like aware of the film in that sense, but that was really it. I was just aware the film existed. So I really didn't know what I was going in for. And then the Blu-ray arrived and I looked at the cover and I was like, oh shit, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one of those films that I often would see on Twitter, like popping up every once in a while from accounts people that I admire saying you have to watch Phantom of the Paradise or people saying stuff like Phantom of the Paradise is better than Rocky Horror Picture Show. Persia, do you find yourself going to bat for this film? I unfortunately haven't had the chance to yet, but I'm excited to eventually. It's funny that you said you've seen people tweet about it because I tweeted about it immediately after I watched it. And I think I had one or two people, you know, it's a very small number of people who know and love this movie respond. But it seems like everyone... At least everyone that I know who has seen it is sort of immediately drawn to it. Yes. I haven't really seen someone bounce off of it 
And I also, for years and years, have been sort of obsessed with Phantom of the Opera. And it was shocking to me that this is like a pre-Phantom, you know, it's based off of the book. It's not really based off of the musical. The musical's sort of like an 80s phenomenon, right? Yeah, which was shocking to me. Something about that really captured my imagination. The fact that this was pre-Phantom of the Opera the way we think of it today. Well, I'm pretty sure there's a silent or like a very like early classic yes. era Phantom of the Opera. There's also a Universal Studios, like part of their Universal Monsters catalog is Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. The Monsterverse. <laughs> the original dark universe. <laughs> 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise. A gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. I kind of feel deflated admitting this, that, you know, the reason this movie speaks to me more is because it has all this like film shit in it. You know, there's like psycho stuff in here. Mm -hmm. Touch of evil. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. There's all that stuff, which just makes me feel like an exhausting, <laughs> you know, film snob kind of person. You got pandered to and you took it. I did. Yeah, they really did. <laughs> <laughs> but there is some sort of magical quality of this era of American movie making of these directors, you know, De Palma, Scorsese, George Lucas, Spielberg, Coppola. I was listening to Slate's flashback podcast today, and they were kind of breaking down how all of these guys, these, you know, film brat guys, they all kind of made a musical, which is so funny to think about. They all tried to do one and they're all fucking crazy. <laughs> like Scorsese's New York, New York, which is probably my favorite movie, is in, an insane idea for a movie. I know Coppola did one kind of later on. Spielberg's doing West Side Story. And Lucas produced Strange Magic? Yeah. <laughs> I guess a movie like Rocky Horror Picture Show isn't going to give you sequences that mirror like Psycho. And I, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that. So that's why it doesn't <laughs> turn me on the way this movie does, I guess. <laughs> Damn. Sorry, just to be clear for the listeners out there, your argument as to why this is a better film than Rocky Horror is because Rocky Horror doesn't reference Psycho. <laughs> just that. Psycho with a plunger in the, in the shower. <laughs> An amazing sequence. Wait, so I want to circle back as to why you don't like camp. Let me just put it like this. And it makes me feel like such a snob. And it's something that I'm actually trying to like work out of my brain and like reconnect this pathway. But if I sit down to watch a film, do I want to watch something that looks like a mess and is not a movie that is like well-known or heard of or made by someone of great renown? Or do I want to sit down and watch a De Palma film, which is so renowned and so loved? And I know there's a lot of like... Uh, elitism in that idea and Dom this is your worst take I know it, it's <laughs> shitty but there was campy B movies that I've always been told you gotta watch like nitwits from planet Nimrod or something like <laughs> okay okay Z alien sludge monster I'm like I don't want to watch Z alien sludge monster because all the performances suck the effects suck there's nothing in there to chew on this movie you got all kinds of stuff am I a jerk for saying that I really like earth girls are easy so <laughs> 
<laughs> I think this is why like I'm tempted to call this thing an elevated B-movie because it has sort of the aesthetics and the trappings of one of those things while again trying to do I think a lot more than what some of those things did. But we're going to end up in film Twitter jail. Every time you say elevated we get deeper and deeper in the rings of, of in the penitentiary. Yeah, I feel like that is why and I'm sure a lot of film snobby people I go through the same sort of realization, no? I mean, probably. It's harder for me to judge through the lens that you're offering here just simply because I've watched so much B-horror in my life that I'm just like numb to like anything that you might be shrugging off as like B-movie aesthetic. Like it's just so melted into my brain that I, I can't really properly separate it. Look, I'm not like a huge fan of John Waters, like I haven't delved deep enough into that filmography to say anything, but that's a person who is intentionally like making the filthiest, most grotesque trash they can, and people love it. So there's clearly like value in these things. Yeah. But if you're trying to compare this to something like the films that Ed Wood made, <laughs> then yeah, it's a tough comparison. But by all accounts, like Ed Wood was an earnest filmmaker. You know, he wasn't setting out to make trash. I don't know. I understand what you're saying. I understand that you're like, someone like De Palma can take the format and the aesthetics of a B-movie and do something more precise with it. I think, mm -hmm. than some of those other filmmakers. I understand that. But also, I do encourage you to open your mind a little bit. <laughs> I don't want to watch Bimbos from Planet Nine. <laughs> So don't so don't watch Bimbos from or you know, don't 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 watch Plan Nine from Outer Space. But there are <laughs> there are other B movies out there. I think for me, what this makes me feel is that I'm benefiting from blissful ignorance. <laughs> when I first watched this movie, I just didn't think of it that way. I was like, oh yeah, Brian De Palma, I've heard that name. You know, like I wasn't like, oh yes, one of the greats. Yeah. Like I was just like, hmm, that sounds familiar. No, uh, yeah. This film stop stuff has like poisoned <laughs> my brain. Yeah, we gotta, both of us should spend less time on film Twitter, I think. Zombies of the stratosphere. Out of the air and from under the sea, these weird zombies from Mars swarm in to annihilate the Earth. What? What are you? I am Marix, a native of the planet Mars. Perhaps not quite a human being by earthly standards. Zombies of the stratosphere. I feel like I've been talking a lot about you guys have been giving me a therapy session on camp. <laughs> Persia, are you someone who loves campy stuff, B-movie stuff? You know, it's funny, especially because Adam was talking about his interest in horror, B-movie horror. I am not interested in horror and never have been. What it really reminds me of is my love for musicals, because I think a okay. lot of people would say inherently that a lot of musicals are campy. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what bothers people a lot about musicals is the sort of the sickly sweetness or how it could be grating or sort of annoying yes. a little bit. Yeah, Adam, I showed my ass on this podcast. Now you have to show yours. Yeah, why, okay, why do you fine. hate musicals? Because I've heard it so much because I love musicals and I don't mind to hear it again. People will not <laughs> listen to our podcast after this episode. I'm going to be murdered in the street. I don't hate musicals. I have trouble <laughs> getting into them. Yeah. I'll say this. The musicals I do like, the thing they all have in common is that they're comedies and that they are all a little bit like meta as well. Hmm. Because the thing that my brain just, I cannot get over this hump, I've tried so many times, is I just can't get over the hump of why did they all start singing? Like, it re <laughs> like I really just, it really, I really cannot get over it. I know it's the dumbest fucking thing no, to I've say about an entire genre of, of incredible <laughs> art made by like incredible people. I'm not discounting it. I have a very hard time 
getting over that hump and connecting with it. I discounted B-movies. You have to discount musicals. <laughs> I'm not, though, because credit to Paul Williams, who wrote this. I love Muppet movies so much. That's but true. But all Muppet movies, are a lot of them are very meta. There's like breaking the fourth wall. And I'm already suspending my disbelief to go like, my favorite character in this is a frog made of felt. You know, it's, it's a lot easier. And it's, and it's all nonstop jokes. So it's a lot easier for my brain to get over the hump of, well, of course he's going to start singing. He's a felt frog. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I go to see Broadway shows every now and then, like not very often, but when I do go, the other problem I have is that if the music is really good, I get into the music and then I miss all of the lyrics and therefore <laughs> miss all of the plot and character development. I just, you know, I wish I could love it more. Persia, you've brought out the worst in both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to tear friendships apart and talk about camp. <laughs> but I don't even remember where we were going with this. Dom started this conversation to trick me into showing my ass. That's that's what just happened there. <laughs> <laughs> do I like other camp things? Yes. Do you like other camp? Do I like other camp? Yes, all musicals. I don't know, because I'm honestly still confused about the meaning of camp. And the Met Gala certainly didn't clarify anything for me right. or the majority of Americans. Camp to me is just like vaguely trash. <laughs> and not, I don't mean trash as in like, like, oh, this is trash, like, like physical trash, like pieces of trash from a trash can. I, oh, oh, interesting. <laughs> I think <laughs> like the costumes look like trash again, not in like I'm looking down on them. Like they look like garbage. What I think of as camp is, <laughs> and this could be wrong, but this is what I think of as camp is something sort of embracing a style that people of essentially high taste think are in bad taste. Yeah, I think intentionally leaning into bad taste is key to camp. Yeah, but I think doing it earnestly, not ironically. Yeah. I think if you're, all these things can be debated, I guess. But yeah, doing it because it's like, I want to do this. I want to yes. express this. I want to talk about this. I want to live this bad taste that you guys think is shitty for some reason that you guys think is beneath you. Also, Dom, I, I want to say that I do think that you do actually like camp because I think some people might argue that the entire American, you know, Hollywood filmography of Paul Verhoeven is camp. That's true. So, Robocop, very campy. Yeah. Pulpy. All right. I guess I like camp. <laughs> <laughs> this is my hottest take. Okay. I'm saying it because I know it's wrong, but I think it's funny. I swear to God that I think Star Wars takes something from Phantom of the Paradise. 100%. Yes. Number one, the design of Darth Vader is yes. totally pulled from the Phantom. Oh my God, so you agree. Yeah, and actually, apparently, after De Palma first saw Star Wars, he was like, George, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> you took my voice box. Like, what the are voice, you doing? Yeah, the voice. Yeah. That's and so funny. I was like, I swear it feels like I'm making this up, but that scene that you already described where you hear him breathing, it sounds exactly like Darth Vader. Yeah. Yes. And Lucas then took De Palma was like, well, at least I like, you know, kept it all black. Like I didn't like change anything. <laughs> also, you know, so De Palma is credited as having rewritten the opening crawl in Star Wars. And this film has an oral crawl. Yeah, you're you know, right. it has like a, this that's narrator that's just like doing the entire thing. And then beyond that, just other similarities. This film is edited by Paul Hirsch, who also was one of the editors on Star Wars. So there's all sorts of cross pollination there. All roads lead to Star Wars. Yeah. How's that? Try it. Phoenix. Try it again. Phoenix. And again. Phoenix. Well, at least you can talk with this. You can plug yourself into the console for singing. 
You really think she's that good? She's too good for you. I'll hire her anyway. She could be my voice now. Could she? Really? Yes. Let's get into the movie, should okay. we? Okay. <laughs> yes, let's do it. Okay. Phantom of the Paradise, written and directed by Brian De Palma, starring Paul Williams, William Finley, and Jessica Harper. Music by Paul Williams, who we've already praised on this podcast for his contributions to Elaine May's Ishtar. Cinematography by Larry Pizer, edited by Paul Hirsch of Star Wars fame, and production designed by Jack Fisk, perhaps best known for his work with David Lynch. A little bit of trivia here is that Sissy Spacek, who was dating Fisk at the time, served as the film's set dresser, and then later starred as Carrie in Brian De Palma's Carrie. The film was made for a budget of $1.3 million and was a huge bomb. It made only $18,000 in its opening weekend and went on to gross somewhere in the ballpark of $250,000. Although documentation on that number is hard to find, this film doesn't even get tracked on Box Office Mojo. For reasons unknown, the film was a huge hit in Winnipeg, Canada, where it played for four months straight (laughs) with additional screenings for the next year plus and repertory screenings ever since its initial release, which always sell out. This was an independent production, largely financed by Edward Pressman, who was the heir to the Pressman Toy Corporation, and many of the sequences in the film were actually shot at the Pressman Toy Factory, including the jail conveyor belt sequence, as well as the record press that mutilates the Phantom. The film was sold to 20th Century Fox, who gave them a $2 million advance, but they had to spend all of that dealing with legal trouble because they came under fire from multiple fronts, They were sued by the creators of the Phantom comic because the film was originally titled Phantom. They then had to settle with Universal Pictures for similarities to Phantom of the Opera. And they were sued by Led Zeppelin's Swansong Records for naming Swan's record label Swansong. They not only lost a lot of money settling with them, but they then also had to spend additional money editing out meticulously the words and logo for Swansong anytime it appeared in the film, which resulted in some dodgy effects work there, as well as the renaming of the label as Death Records. However, we do then get, as a result of that, the really awesome image of the dead bird, which was designed by Jack Fisk. And I would really like a denim jacket with the Death Records logo on the back because it fucking rules. Yes. I love that record logo. So cool. The last thing I just want to add there that I think is very important is that Brian De Palma had the idea for this film because he was in an elevator and was listening to a Muzak cover of The Beatles. And he found himself so disgusted with the way that something so pure and beautiful had been like strip mined for profit in such a brazenly repulsive way that he went home and conceived this. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. Okay, so just briefly, can we just kind of go through the general plot of Phantom of the Paradise for listeners who have not seen it and maybe are interested in checking it out? And just so you know, we're going to spoil every part of the movie like we always do. Persia, can you help us walk through this? Sure. And I always ask people to do this on my podcast, and now (laughs) I see that it might be rather cruel, but I'll give my best go. So the 
main character of the movie is named Winslow Leach. And he essentially wants to break into the music industry. He is a singer-songwriter, and he creates this, what he calls a rock cantata, which I love. They say that all the time. You know, oh, my rock cantata. (laughs) And it is based off of Faust. And so essentially, he gets his music stolen by a record producer named Swan, who is sort of mysterious and loves to exploit people. Swan takes Leech's music, decides he's going to open up a venue with it. It's going to be like his new thing. And does everything in his power so that Leech is stripped of his connection to his own music, of his livelihood, of his life, of his voice. He frames him and he essentially drives Winslow mad and sends him to prison. But before that, Winslow meets one of the hopefuls to help open Swan's venue. And she is like a really talented, beautiful singer. And they make a connection. So fast forward, Winslow's been in prison. This venue called The Paradise is opening. He has metal teeth. Yeah, he has me- his <laughs> yeah. teeth have been pulled out. He's doing forced labor, as you said, in this toy factory. And something drives him wild. He hears that The Paradise is opening with his music. He hears the announcement. I think they play a little bit of his music even over the speaker. And, and he's like, no, like never again. Never, <laughs> never, yeah. Never. And he has some like weird, maybe slightly magical powers, which is when he gets angry, he gets super powered. He sort of pokes out. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. (laughs) And it's never really explained, but he definitely has it. He breaks out of prison. He decides to go trash, you know, the record company. And in that process, he gets his head caught in a record press. And that is sort of his origin story of really becoming the Phantom. He winds up in this new venue that Swan has opened (laughs) and begins to haunt it as he sees the sort of proceedings of how Swan is going to use his rock cantata as the opening act. The second act is Swan convinces Leech to sign a contract with him to remake his music, promises him that this woman that Leech has fallen in love with, who's called Phoenix, will sing his music. Of course, Swan double crosses him and invites a hard rocker named Beef (laughs) to instead perform... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and tries to kill Leech again by bricking him up in a recording studio. Then we get to the third act where it is revealed that Swan is immortal because he signed a deal with the devil. He's also made Leech immortal because he's sort of co-signed Leech into the deal. Yeah. <laughs> and Phoenix does eventually sing Leech's music because Leech kills Beef. R.I.P. Beef, you were done wrong. <laughs> So in the end, Phoenix becomes a sensation. Swan decides he's going to marry her and then kill her on national television. And Leech arrives at the last moment, kills Swan and dies himself. And it's live on national television. That's entertainment. (laughs) So that's the um, long or rather not short of it. Thank you. I can't imagine hearing that. Not seeing this movie, what that must be like. What like that is the movie? That's insane. That's the movie. It is insane. It's totally nuts. Whatever you're seeing in your head is also not as insane as what this movie actually looks like, <laughs> or even is, not as right? beautiful. Yes, that's I true. Hundred percent agree. It's a gorgeous looking film, and there are like emotional moments in here that actually are quite profound. Like the ending scene when he is screaming, but you can't hear him, and just like crawling towards the camera. It's so crazy that he. Cho- chooses to shoot that last scene that way. He's just like, every shot is so measured and thoughtful. At the end, he's like, let's just do the whole final scene cinema verite. And it feels like so fucking terrifying because of it. Oh my God, your face, what's happened to your face? 
I have to say, the thing about the movie for me is the music. Yeah, I came away music. from the movie and got on my Spotify and found the album and listened to the album. Like, I think it is all good. It slaps. Yeah, it is truly good. I could tell you my favorite tracks, but I do really love Jessica Harper as Phoenix. Singing special to me. Yeah, she's great. The only other thing I've seen her in is Suspiria. She's amazing. As anyone knows who likes Phantom of the Opera, you know, she sort of sells that young ingenue who has a beautiful, powerful voice. And that voice is bewitching. And it's sort of, I see why it drives people to almost want to possess her, which is something I'd like to talk about later. But it really works for me. Sounds like we should get into our scenes then. Do you want to continue with that thought, Priscilla? I will, because you see I was leading there. After much deliberation, I think... What I decided as my Eye of the Duck scene is after the very successful first concert where Phoenix debuts on the Paradise stage, Swan takes her back to his place. And the scene you see is Phoenix and Swan in the bed, sort of cuddling, like making out. And the Phantom, or Winslow Leach, is on the roof staring down. And the thing that got me about that scene is that at that point, it doesn't seem like they actually care about Phoenix. It's not really about whether Swan loves Phoenix more or Winslow's love is pure. For me, she's just a cog in the machine to them. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of a running joke in the movie is that Swan has cameras everywhere in his house, in the venue, everywhere. Swan has cameras everywhere. And Swan can see on a screen, he's watching the Phantom watch them. And that's what he's deriving pleasure from. He's deriving pleasure from Phantom watching him win and the anguish that Phantom is going through. He's not actually deriving pleasure from like hooking up with this lady. And in some ways, though, it's not as clear, you know, that's Phantom's distress as well, is not that, oh, he's got the girl I want, but that even if Winslow got the thing he wanted, which is for Phoenix to sing his music, he knows he's still powerless. You know, he doesn't have the upper hand. And I think maybe he realizes at that point he never will. Yeah. Yeah. Then he tries to kill Swan and Swan is like, no, I'm I also am part of a deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love he does have a great line in that scene where he's like, oh, I've signed one, too. Or something. Yeah. I think he says, yeah. I'm also under contract. Or I'm like also that. under yeah. contract. Great. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. I think that scene for me, it just sort of exemplified that the conflict of the movie is more about these two men and their obsessions yeah. with power mm-hmm. and their obsessions with, you know, gaining things. And it almost belies the fact that or maybe it betrays the idea that this is actually about art or this is actually about music at all. That maybe the music mm-hmm. doesn't matter as much as winning does or as success does or as possession does. When I must go It's such a through line in a lot of these these guys from this era. A lot of their films are about these kind of like, I mean, I don't want to say like incel, but when you look back at Taxi Driver and movies like The Conversation, I mean, a movie like this is about a man who is obsessed with a woman who, and it's not clear whether the woman really 
care that much <laughs> either way. He's just mm-hmm. like consumed with his obsession for this, this ingenue. Yeah. It also sort of reminds me of this thought or this idea that I've seen circulating on the internet a lot recently, which is that men pursue women for the approval of other men. Yeah. Men don't mm. particularly pursue women because they want to be with women or that they care about women's, you know, concept of them. It's actually just about gaining other male approval. And that's why they'll do stuff like, I don't know, work out a lot or sleep with many, many women because it's not actually about having relationships with these women. It's, you know, bragging rights. It's being able to be mm. like, look how masculine, look how powerful I am. Look what I can do with my power. The sexual relationship is not the end point. It's not the end game. Do you find this to be a pretty progressive film in that way? Because it's surprisingly, there's a, a lot of stuff going on here in the way that her character is sort of objectified and just kind of cast aside by the industry. I mean, they do the whole thing with the casting couch, which is like so explicitly, like you yeah. literally go in yeah. and have to hook up with this man on the casting couch. Like it's not it's even... literal, yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's like, you can say yes because of the depictions of how horrible the conditions are for these women, and that's shown over and over again, but you don't ultimately get a fully fleshed out female character in the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Phoenix, I mean, like I said, she's practically a symbol. And I'm interested if you guys have an opinion, but they do this thing partway through where Swan asks her, like, what would you do to sing on stage? And she says anything. And as soon as she's sort of successful on stage, she sort of comes on to Swan. She's the one who's like, is that all you want from me? Right. Yeah. Yeah, It's odd. It feels like out of place, I thought. It feels odd. Yeah. No hesitation. Immediately, she's sort of portrayed as like, I'll do anything to be successful. I'll do anything to be in front of that crowd. She immediately sort of falls in with Swan and is, I think, taking drugs and just like becomes the manipulated starlet. And so I don't know. I just I I think that's the stopping point for me to really be like, yeah, I loved it. Great. Um, (laughs) That her character is it's 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 just like not really a person. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, it feels like a heel turn, you know, where she's defined in one way so specifically and then immediately just just flip flops. Right. And the casting couch scene, she's extremely upset and violent towards it. She's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. That's not how I want to do this. I want to sing. I'm a singer. She repels that idea and then eventually falls into it. Even when she comes into audition, she's like, are you going to let me sing this time? Yeah. So it's interesting. That Slate podcast I mentioned earlier, those two writers, they go into detail about De Palma's career and how he has a kind of strange obsession with women who are being manipulated by men and the way in which he shows it, it's like always gratuitous and it's always over the top. You know, most people have seen Carrie. I don't know if that's the best example, but that is an example of a movie that he just goes over the top to show how much this woman is like, you know, Tortured and tormented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, I haven't seen Carrie. I've read it, but we tried to watch Carrie as a family once. And immediately after she gets her period in the shower, my mom turned it off. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, nope, not tonight. (laughs) Yeah. My head went kind of in a different direction. Watching this as someone who was just a fan of De Palma movies, I think I'm like 
unconsciously looking for like the De Palma-ness of it. And when I was saying before, there's a moment when, when he becomes the Phantom, I think the film, it takes on to me kind of a new meaning or it clicks in, I guess. The scene that I found to be just so brilliantly composed is when the Phantom is in that studio mm-hmm. and he's hooked up to that big synthesizer. And it's just this incredibly constructed sequence of shots and sounds. The camera kind of tracks like the wire through his microphone. Yeah, to the wires, yeah. to the audio bay and showing how Swan is manipulating Leech's voice to give him a voice back. I just found it so fascinating in the meta narrative that's going on here that he is using a synthesizer to give this man his voice back. And not only that, but he gives him his voice specifically. Like it's his literal voice and then he goes, perfect. Yeah. That's like the level of power he's interested in. Yeah. And Adam, we always talk about process for some reason on this podcast and that is an amazing process sequence. And I think you see that sort of process stuff. This is early into Palma's career. I think from here we see all kinds of process stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Blowout. Oh, so much process in that one. All about the manipulation of sound, actually. The process of manipulating sound. I found a, a cool little thing about this scene in particular, and this synthesizer in particular. An article on Pitchfork uh, by this guy, Nathan Smith. So what the Phantom is hooked up to in this scene is this synthesizer called Tonto which was the world's largest polyphonic analog synthesizer, and it's still in operation today. Wow. He writes, In real life, the Tonto expanded the expressive capabilities of those who used it. People like Stevie Wonder and Quincy Jones, you know, to chart the new sonic dimensions. In Phantom of the Paradise, the Tonto is something of a monstrosity that gives a voice to the voiceless. You know, the 70s are such a moment of change in American pop culture and especially film. And one of the big things that's happening here is the birth of all these like synthesizers. Yeah. Music is getting very electric. It's funny that he's supposed to be Phil Spector because Spector created the wall of sound. Yes. Right. And that was a huge change in the music industry. But at this time also, I mean, this film is extremely critical of the music industry, but it's also very, I think, aware of the film industry. And everybody at this time, I think, is talking about new Hollywood and old Hollywood and, you know, Hollywood has gone electric kind of with this with this new wave of American filmmakers. And in this moment, he is being given a voice through synthesizers and three years later, Star Wars comes out. that's a great choice because I think the struggle with my scene honestly is I actually don't think it's a great constructed scene artistically I thought it went on too long (laughs) (laughs) there was something that I was like okay we're still doing this in my scene but I did think it hit 
the symbolic piece really well. But you're right. I love the, as you said, the process of the scene you picked between Winslow in the center at the piano and then following the wire into seeing Swan at the console. I think you're seeing too, Persia, in the same way of this one, that it's so, in, this one's so interested in process. You're seeing, I think, is so interested in surveillance, which I think surveillance and process and like obsession are probably the the overarching themes of De Palma's career. Totally. All of which I think really start to like take root in this film. It's such an, you know, this is like his early Hollywood debut film in a lot of ways. Yeah. The other thing that's cool about your scene, Dom, is that it is a little bit of an echo of the first time we meet Winslow, where we have this incredible sort of like 360 shot of him playing the piano and, and singing his song. And that shot is so cool because number one, it brings you into the music and into the sound by like literally swirling you around it. But also you see, despite all of the sort of emotion on his face while he's playing, no one is listening. There's nothing yeah. behind him. The only thing yeah. you do see is a janitor like cleaning things up. And then he kind of does a similar sort of camera move in the scene you brought up. And we now see that like Winslow's face is like robbed of emotion and he's locked in this tiny little closet. And this is all he's got left. It's very cool. There's a reason that when you, this is something I was trying to do earlier and I was just looking for some art references. So many of the film's famous screen caps are from that scene. Oh, really? I think so. Or just particularly of the Phantom in that recording studio at the piano. It's also such a synthesis of like the Phantom of the Opera stuff and that old classical stuff with yeah. this new, you know, rock and roll. Like he's in a studio and there's wires and shit and the amplifiers and a synthesizer keyboard. And everything. That's funny, actually. I didn't think about it, but it's his organ, essentially. Oh, yeah, yeah totally. You're totally right. An organ is a huge mechanism. Yeah. You know, in Phantom of the Opera, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of dug into the bones of a building, you know, an organ is played in one part and you hear it in the cathedral or whatever it is in yeah. the, in, on the stage. But the big thing in Phantom of the Opera is the organ sound. It's all organ shit. That, I, I didn't like put organ. that together at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that scene because I was highly considering it and I was stuck between that and something else. And now I don't have to make an argument for this scene, which is great. Yes. So (laughs) the scene I'm going to go with is a sequence I'll call Beef Gets Cooked. Yes. My partner (laughs) was gunning for this one. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I love this scene. It's amazing. So the crux of the scene is that the undeads who are the sort of kiss like analog or not kiss analog depending on how you view it they play this great song that opens up the show and they start you know dismembering mannequins in the audience and bringing the dismembered body parts back on stage they put it inside this box which gets raised up to the height of the stage and the phantom like rides the counterweight in the other direction and finds like a prime spot for continuing his reign of terror And it's this big Frankenstein homage and this box full of body parts gets zapped by neon imaginary lightning 
and beef emerges from <sighs> this coffin and begins to play this incredible song. And the thing that then happens next is the Phantom grabs hold of the neon sign in the shape of a lightning bolt that was used as stage decoration, aims it at beef and shoots it directly at him. It hits beef and he is electrocuted on stage. And we have this incredible strobing effect of the light changing repeatedly. And he's doing these like otherworldly motions. It's like an incredible practical effect by Paul Hirsch, the editor. Kind of stop motion, right? So what he did, it's very, very creative. He essentially took the film strip and separated it frame by frame. And then he would grab pairs of frames and play them in reverse. So instead of the frames going one, two, three, four, it went two, one, four, three, six, five, uh. eight, seven. So it's, it, and that's what gives it this very strange jitter and creates the strobe of the lights. And it looks incredible. It's, it's one of the most interesting ways I've seen an electric shock portrayed on screen. So I love it on some level just for the filmmaking. But the other reason I love it is sort of the way it literally represents the themes of the film. This idea that you take something pure, this rock cantata that Winslow shows us on the piano at the very beginning of the film. And for me also just like there is nothing more pure than a single person with a single instrument. Like when it comes to music, I'm not saying that I only listen to like singer songwriter stuff, but that really works for me is what I'm saying. It just works yeah. it really. If you want to get right to me, like that's the <laughs> easiest way to do it. Like remove all the bells and whistles. It's just one person with an instrument. And the whole film is about the Frankensteining of his music. You see it performed time and time again. It gets put through the ringer of all these different genres. You know, you have the Beach Boys version, you have the Kiss version, you have this incredible sequence in the middle of the film where Swan is sitting at a desk that is a 360 degree desk that is literally like a gigantic record. <laughs> and as he is turning around, you see different musical groups performing different genres, all playing his music over and over and over again. So when you finally have this performance, you have this literal Frankenstein playing a literal Frankenstein of Winslow's original vision. And I think that just really gets to the heart of what De Palma is going for when he says that he was inspired by hearing, you know, elevator music renditions of the Beatles and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you have no choice but to cook it, to cook it, to, uh, to kill it. <laughs> to cook the beef. You yeah. got to cook the beef. That, I mean, I could do a, not even an episode of a podcast, maybe a podcast series just on the live stage show that they end up with that Beef stars in. It's so which cool. Is, they play two songs back to back. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I want the show. I want yeah, the show yeah. to be real and I want to watch it. I mean, he's an insanely great performer, that guy. Oh, yeah. he's amazing. Yeah. He, he, so he apparently when he first auditioned, like he went in there basically like doing it like Alice Cooper and they were like, no, that's not quite right. Can you do it like little Richard? So he like didn't quite understand what that meant as a direction. And 
I guess they kept talking about it and the place they reached was was this. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something about that name feels so much more modern than the rest of the movie. Yes. It just it just yeah. feels like a meme that would happen in 2020 or something. 100%. Yes. It feels like someone tweeting like what an absolute unit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while while I was watching I texted Adam just the word swan. <laughs> And he texts me back just the word beef. <laughs> and when I received the text, I was like, maybe he didn't, is he not watching it? Cause it sounds like just a word that like, that we would just like send to each other as funny. Like, it's like the game is that we're saying things from the, the movie. You don't just say any word. And then we hit the scene where they present beef. And it's just the way in which he's presented. He like comes out of like a, uh, out of a coffin, a coffin. And I think, uh, Swan is like, ladies and gentlemen, like I give you the future. <laughs> he says, I give you the future beef. He's <laughs> the future. It's amazing. I hope that that future is still ahead of us. You know, I yes. hope one day we reach the future. That is beef. Yes. <laughs> The other kind of like Frankenstein element of it is that the actors slash musicians that play the undeads are the exact same group of actors that play the Juicy Fruits and that right. also play the Beach, the beach Bums. bums. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's this sort of, you know, this chopping up, this reassembling, this, uh, this rebuilding to the point that the original thing is completely lost. I also feel like from that scene, you get the same sort of power struggle between Winslow and Swan. And the complete disregard for Beef, essentially. Swan knows that he's putting Beef in the position that he could be seriously hurt. They know already that Winslow is broken out and he's around. He's back to haunting. And they make him go on anyway. And it's just like they offer him up for the sacrifice. Because that's entertainment. Because that's entertainment, baby. (laughs) Gentlemen, I give you the future. Beef. Okay, great. So who wins? How do we decide? <laughs> well, I think Paul Williams wins. That's true. <laughs> well, so you all agree that camp is bad. I win. <laughs> <laughs> I never said that. I never I conceded think that point. I don't think camp is bad. I think like any genre or any type of thing, there's good ones and there's bad ones. Yes. And also, I guess good and bad is subjective. So uh, everything is equal and the points don't matter. Absolutely. That's true. Whose line philosophy will always guide us to the light. <laughs> Just one thing I think I'll, I'll bring up because I think it's funny. So, you know, again, in one of these special features, Brian De Palma is like railing against the mere concept of television. You know, he says things like if it's on television, it's for sale and and I'm not just talking about the commercials. I'm talking about the things in between the commercials. Okay. Just like absolutely hates it. Very like anti-capitalist notion, which I think bleeds through into this film 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he goes on to say, however, I love Survivor. <laughs> He's like, All right, so everyone. No, but, but his, his reasoning is that Survivor is so blatantly like embarrassing in the way that it is obviously staged that he has like no choice but to respect it. <laughs> yeah. Despite being, quote, reality television. Yeah, there's a similar quote where apparently the only new thing David Lynch has watched in the last decade is like that car show Top Gear. (laughs) (laughs) That's like me being like, I despise uh, anything created specifically for YouTube. And now I find myself like 
having panic attacks and calming down by watching like a strange Englishman build, you know, Game Boy mods. <laughs> I think that comes back to like things knowing what they are. I think you're right. Yeah. Honestly, I'm still not sure this movie knows what it is. <laughs> That's kind of the the brilliance of it, though. Yeah. The unique. It's just such a unique. I'm so glad I finally watched this movie. Me too. That's one of the pure joys of doing this podcast is we're finally being forced to just watch things that we yeah. should have watched years ago. Yeah. But I will not watch the Blob from Planet Bimbo Island. But you should watch the Blob. The Blob is very good. I haven't seen the Blob either. The Blob. I rules. refuse to be scared or stressed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I also hate TV. <laughs> so I, I, w- I want to read a quote from Paul Williams. So he says, I did things in my 30s that were ignored by the world that could have been quickly labeled a failure. Here's a classic example. In 1974, I did a movie called Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise was a huge flop in this country. There were only two cities in the world where it had any real success. Winnipeg, Canada and Paris, France. So, okay, let's write it off as a failure. Maybe you could do that. But all of a sudden, I'm in Mexico, and a 16-year-old boy comes up to me at a concert with an album, a Phantom of the Paradise soundtrack, and asks me to sign it. I sign it. Evidently, I was nice to him, and we had a nice conversation. I don't remember the moment. I remember signing the album. I don't know if I think I remember it, or if I actually remember it. But this, you know, 14 or 16-year-old, whatever old this guy was, well... I know who the guy is now because I'm writing a musical based on Pan's Labyrinth. It's Guillermo del Toro. Oh, shit. The work that I've done with Daft Punk is totally related to them seeing Phantom of the Paradise 20 times and deciding they're going to reach out to the 70-year-old songwriter to get involved in an album called Random Access Memories. So what is the lesson in that? The lesson for me is being very careful about what you label a failure in your life. Be careful about throwing something in the round file as garbage, because you may find that it's the headwaters of a relationship that you can't even imagine is coming in your future. Mm. hell yeah and i just think that's a nice note to end on because i think it's amazing that this film has this like second life it's not known by many that many people but it is it is known there is a bit of a cult following it's well known enough for you know shout factory to put out a really awesome blu-ray release of it and it has this amazing ripple effect and creates this wonderful friendship between two incredible artists it lives on it does can i do my blu-ray corner yeah what does that entail (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is a, a new segment called Adam's Blu-ray Corner. Where you have to do like a jingle or like a... Yeah, we need a new piece of... A new, a new like song a disc jockey voice. This you is should Adam's Blu-ray yeah, yeah. Corner. Welcome to Adam's Blu-ray Corner. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to shout out the Blu-ray release of this from uh, Scream Factory, which is part of Shout Factory. It is a really beautiful transfer of the film. If you are looking to watch the film, I would recommend this being the way to do it. And not only that, you will probably watch the film and find yourself thinking, I need to know everything there is to know about this film. I think that is the only possible reaction one can have after watching it. And I've got good news for you, because this thing is packed full of extras. There's a whole 50-minute documentary about the making of this film. And there's also up-to-date interviews with Brian De Palma, with Paul Williams. There's a conversation between Guillermo del Toro and Paul Williams. There's interviews with the makeup designer. There is the original trailers and TV spots, as well as all of the deleted scenes from the film and the original footage featuring the Swan Song logo in all the places where it was edited out. So if you, like me, collect physical media, this is definitely one worth getting. That's my Blu-ray corner. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> Dom's like, fuck you, I'm editing that out. We're never doing this again. <laughs> no, I like this idea of Blu-ray Corner. I just think it needs a song in your set. Like, I want to like Blue's Clues, you know? When they sing that, they're like, I can find a letter. Yeah. I just found a letter. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder who it's from. Blu-ray Corner. <laughs> That's it. That's the theme song. That'd be amazing. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com. Listen to us on all of your favorite podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google, and more. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It really does help. Persia, can you tell us where we can find you on the web? Oh, me on the web. Um, or anywhere in general, really. Yeah, I do have a Twitter. It's just my full name, which is p-e-r-c-i-a-v-e-r-l-i-n and if you do go to that twitter you will also find my podcast twitter which is linked there which is 11 again podcast and the 11 is numbers so one one again podcast same shtick it's available everywhere you know i did the work it's on the (laughs) platforms honestly i have to say i don't think the vibe is that dissimilar to this show you know yeah i agree the framing is different but it's the same sort of talk 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 think Talk it's a great show. We can all yeah, agree. It's really good. <laughs> Listen to Eleven again. Thank you. And thanks for coming. And yeah, thank you so much. Us. This was so much fun. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero. That's Dominic with an I C K. Keep up with my writing about film, television, and video games on Esquire.com. And you can find me on all social media at Adam Vol. That's V O L E. And you can watch my films online at AdamVolerich.com. That's V O L E R I C H. Our theme song, Snowflake, is written by Jesse Lewis and comes from his album Atticus. You can find out more about Jesse at jessielewismusic.com. Our logo was designed by Francesca Volerich. You can purchase her work at society6.com slash Francesca Volerich. And the next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck. And listeners, we have something very special coming, a special announcement to make. We won't be telling you right now, but if you tune in next week, you will learn a very special thing about the future of Eye of the Duck, especially in this coming summer. 